If you notice on your uh, bulletin outline, I've put a definition of inspiration, which we're going to talk about today, and then the verbal plenary view. And then, of course, you can see that we'll go from there from to scriptural proof of, of inspiration, and then I will give some final thoughts. Um, let's jump right in. First of all, definition of inspiration. When we talk about inspiration, what do we mean? There has to be a definition. You can't just use the term without finding it. So when we talk about that the scriptures were divinely inspired in order to encounter the world and to have dialogue with the world, we have to know what it means. And I've given a very uh, simple, uh, what I believe, definition. Inspiration is the supernatural, that's the first underlined word, inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon the scripture writers, which renders their writings an exact record of the revelation or which resulted in what they wrote actually being the words of God. So when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we're talking about that it is an exact record. Of course, there's always the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the scriptures in contrast or in, in conjunction, if, if you will, in conjunction with the biblical writers. So the Holy Spirit is involved in the process. But this is very important right here. This word record, exact record. I added uh, that from a uh, conservative scholars. I added this, uh, trans, uh, got rid of one of the words and put the words exact record. And the reason is we have to have something that is written for us. You could have gone with, let's say, the oral tradition. But the oral tradition erodes over time. Sometimes things would change. Like if I were to play a game this morning and I were to take uh, right over here, tell Jim a secret and have him pass that around, by the time we got over here, it would totally change what the original message was. So the biblical writers had to write these down. They were under the direction of God. And we start here today with, well, we're starting today with inspiration, but we've already looked at general revelation. That is how God reveals himself through nature. Paul says that they are without excuse because God's invisible attributes and power can be seen by that which is created. Then we talked about special revelation. And special revelation was God revealed himself to Moses, revealed himself to Paul, reveals himself to you in the moment of salvation and, and as you live your Christian life. Those two must come first. And more importantly, when we talk about special, in, uh, special revelation, you are also talking about inspiration. Because without the, without the special revelation, that is, we establish the fact that God does talk to people, then we can start talking about inspiration. Because without special revelation, you cannot have inspiration. It's like there's a, there's a gap missing. There is a void missing. How you can go from general revelation, God revealing himself by what he created, to all of a sudden talking about inspiration. You must have special revelation. And so this is where theology goes in order. And you remember I used the piano, although I didn't play it quite properly. I tried to show you and demonstrate that all of this must be in sync. So those two come first, and then we can talk about inspiration. And here in this definition, 
the biblical writers wrote exactly the words of God. Now, when you come to theology, and I don't want to make you theologians, but I want to make you aware of what is, is going on. Um, let's talk about some theories of inspiration. I'm going to give you four. They're pretty simple. I'm, I've cut them down dramatically. Books have been written about them, so I'm just giving you short sentences here. First of all, there's the intuition theory. That is that the biblical writers were just given insight. That they, they had an idea, they had an insight of what God wanted them to write, and so they wrote. So that's called the intuition theory. That there's a uh, kind of like uh, some people would say, well, I feel like something bad's going to happen today, and then all of a sudden something bad happened. Uh, that's an intuition theory. There are problems with this theory. I'm not going to, this is for a different, you could do another sermon on this. But secondly, there's illumination theory. That is the influence of the Holy Spirit with a heightened awareness of the biblical writer. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is involved, but he merely heightens the awareness of God. And there's a problem with that theory as well. And then there's what's called the dynamic theory. The dynamic theory is a combination of human and divine communication. I don't particularly have so much of a problem with this. It depends on where you go in the dialogue. Uh, and some mostly go to the extreme left, which I don't agree with. But the dynamic theory says that there's a combination between the human and, and divine communication. And that's okay. But the one that I ascribe to and I think is more biblically sound and where we are going today is the verbal plenary theory. Now, I know you've heard that maybe in Sunday school. You maybe even heard somebody mention, well, I'm a verbal plenarist. What does that mean? Well, very simply, verbal plenary, if you break it down, verbal means that God spoke directly to the biblical writers the exact words he wanted written down. Sometimes called the dictation theory, where God dictated to the writer what he, want, what he wanted in Scripture. And then the idea of plenary. What is meant by plenary? Plenary, and this is in your, this should be uh, in your outline. Plenary, all parts of Scripture are divinely authoritative and of divine origin. So here you have an overview of the four theories of inspiration. You should know that I ascribe to this one. That's why I put it last, and that's why I think it's so important. So where I'm coming from is more of a conservative theological base where I believe that God wrote through the men exactly what he wanted to say. Now, to say that, God didn't use them as like robots. They weren't robots. In fact, one of the texts we're looking at today from Peter, Peter uses words and has a different style than Paul and Luke and Matthew and John. All these, it's, it's like God spoke to them but kept their personal characteristics. So the inspiration, defining the inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon the scripture writers, which renders their writings an exact record of the very words of God. And then, of course, the verbal plenary is that God spoke to the biblical writers exactly what he wanted, and then that all parts of scripture. So even when we come to the text, uh, where the Apostle Paul says, not I, or not, not the Lord, but I say, I think that that's inspired as, as well. Paul 
even though he was giving his understanding that is still inspired because it found its way into the scriptures. So all scriptures. I think you're left with this choice. I think you're left with this choice. If it is not all inspired, if not every word is inspired in the biblical text, and maybe a portion of it is, is what would some uh, Nazarenes and some others believe that only the historical backgrounds, um, then you're left with, so what is? So the better approach is to be uh, that from Genesis to Revelation, everything that is in here was divinely inspired by God. And therefore, because it comes from God and we can trust it, we can build our lives upon it. So let's launch into... If we have this biblical understanding to begin with, the biblical writer and divine origin. So you have, on one end, you have the, the human element, which could feed into the dynamic uh, theory, and you have the God element. But you also have this fusing together in which God creates the scripture himself. So when we have that as a starting point, as we move forward in time, we get something like this. The first generation reads it, it's inspired. The second generation reads it, it's, it's inspired. The third generation, it's inspired. It goes on and on and on. Therefore, what, what was originally written by God through men remains inspired to this day. So in other words, when you encounter the scripture, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have attained faith equal of standing with ours, by the righteousness of God and Christ Savior, our Lord, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is inspired. You are encountering the very words of God, even though they are of ancient origin. So in other words, when you read this, you are hearing what God would have say just like creation, who he created at one time for all, that everybody could know that he is God. Hear from scripture, one time all, that everybody knows that this is inspired by God. And therefore, you can build your lives on it. It's important. And I think it's important to be able to decide in your own heart and own mind that this is the word of God. That has to be foundational. And again, I'll make this argument. If one portion of scripture is not inspired or has man's opinion in it, then what portion can you trust? When you talk to a feminist, you get a different view of scripture totally. They would say, and I wrote this in a little write-up uh, in the bulletin, the feminist would say, well, uh, the Bible's clearly met, written with a man's point of view, and of course... When, when I read that and I hear that, particularly Susan Johnson, one of the big proponents of feminist uh, theology, um, she basically says, in a, in a nutshell, the scripture is not inspired because women are treated as second-class citizens. And if the Apostle Paul was bent towards squelching women and making them second-class citizens, then you can't trust the scripture. So feminine theology has nothing to stand on. There's nothing to stand on. You've, you've, just, you've just said that it was written by men, not by God. And therefore, this is where you get theology today, 
when you can say that this part was written by man with a bent towards men and not women, then you, then you, you can stand back and say, well, wait a minute, we don't have to apply that. Therefore, women can become pastors, they can do all this stuff, and that's where they get it from. They get it from that type of theology. By denying the existence, and there's not a feminist in this world, and I'm not talking about women in general, I'm talking about feminist theology. There's not a feminist in the world that believes the Bible is fully inspired. You can't. Because if you can change this, you can change anything and make it say what you want it to say. And we're going to get into that in just, in just a minute. So, scriptural proof for inspiration. These are two classic passages that I'm giving you. There's nothing uh, extremely difficult about them. They're pretty straightforward. First is 2 Peter. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter. Chapter 1. 20 to 21. Now, Peter is writing this in context of his witness of Jesus Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's also trying to get the people of 2 Peter, who were immersed with false prophets and false teachers, to get them to Scripture. In fact, he says, and we have something more. This is in verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now here we're talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been written yet. To which you would do well to pay attention to. So he's saying here, I want you to pay attention to the prophetic word that went before you. You remember that circle at the bottom? Second reader, third reader, fourth reader. Um, here you have, pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. And then he says, which is where we're at today, knowing first of all, and that refers back to paying attention to, in verse 19, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy, listen to this very clearly, it's stated, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The word prophecy, propheteia, the Greek word propheteia means an utterance by God. So I want you to think of it this way. That no utterance of God, and scripture is graphe, which is where the word uh, passage of scripture comes from. And here a reference to the Old Testament clearly for Peter. And by the way, Hebrew is read right to left. We read left to right. But when you're reading Hebrew... It's one of the, the big problems I had when I first encountered Hebrew, and I was having to read it from right to left. And, of course, there's a, there's a lot of beautiful little characters in Hebrew, beautiful, when you, when you study it. Had to go through the flashcards and do all of that and learn all the, the nuances of the word. But I finally got it. Um, you read it right to left. It's... It, it's it's, it's like batting right-handed. You're, you're a right-handed batter, and all of a sudden you have to switch and bat left. It may not look pretty at first, but anyway. Interpretation. He says here that no utterance inspired by God. That should settle the issue. No utterance inspired by God in Scripture comes from someone's interpretation. Epilusisis. Epilusisis is the word for interpretation, and that means to explain something. So here we go. The big issue here, the, I think the ESV, which we're looking at this morning, correctly translates it, 
someone's. There's two issues here. One is the NIV and the NCV adds the word prophet. So you could read it this way, that no prophecy of scripture comes from a prophet's own interpretation. Matter of fact, you go home, look it up. The NIV, the NCV, they both translate it that way. However, the ESV, the King James, and the New American Standard say someone's. So who's right? I think if you take the first one is the prophet doesn't interpret God's word. I think the better one is someone's. Refers to anyone. Because of chapter 2, which comes on the heels of this. In chapter 2, Peter writes, But false prophets rose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So in other words, the, these prophets, these so-called people of God, are going to come behind and they're going to go, Oh yeah, God said this because of the interpretation. That is wrong. God didn't say that. And the Apostle Paul says you've got to be careful, or Peter says you have to be careful with it. So the point is that God spoke the prophecy. That's what I want you to remember here. God spoke the, spoke the, the prophecy. It wasn't to be interpreted or, or interpreted by um, anyone, and what I mean is overlaying on Scripture, making Scripture say something that it does not say. Charles Stanley years ago said, did you know the Bible says there is no God? Well, he also said, if you read the verse before it, it says the fool has said there is no God. But the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. You can't overlay an interpretation or put something on Scripture that Scripture does not say. And that's very, very, very important. Now, we look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. This is key. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He puts this first negatively and then positively. Let's look at the negative. No prophecy. We know what that word means. It means a direct uh, utterance inspired by God. The word produced is Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh. It's not spelt, but we say Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But it's Pharaoh. That's how it's pronounced. And that means guided or directed. And then you have, by the will of men, thelemy, thelemy, which means desire or wish. So if I could translate it for you, I would translate it this way. No divine message was guided by man or man's desire. That pretty much shuts off all avenue. What Peter is doing here is he's shutting off the idea that man had anything to do with the actual theology contents of the Bible. That wasn't their job. Their job was simply to communicate what God wrote. He wanted uh, written down on scriptures. So what you're doing here, I want you to see this, what you're doing is you're taking away the element and the argument that man wrote scripture. The culture in which we live in today says, well, but that's what man wrote years ago. And the key there is that's what man wrote. You've got a starting point here when you can come to the scriptures and say, look, this is what the Bible says, that no prophecy, no words were ever communicated by man. It was communicated by God. It is divinely inspired. 
Therefore, it's not man's writings. God is the origin of the writings. And that's where you have to come to if you're a believer. I don't know any other way to get there. Uh, the fact is that there's things in Scripture I don't like. Particularly the times when I'm reading it. I'm not saying I don't like it, but there's, there's times when I'm reading something. Let me define what I said. I love all Scripture. But there's times I read something and something's going on in my life and I go, ouch. I don't like that, but I got to do it because God wrote it. And, you know, God wrote it. God said it. I believe it. That's it. I know that may seem an oversimplification of, of this, but the reality is man did not invent or direct the writing of Scripture. Positively, this is what he says. But men spoke from God. On one end, man did not write it, but on the other end, they did write it, but they spoke from God, not from themselves. Lelo, that's the Greek word there for spoke, which means to say something based on an influence. You know, I still struggle with this. As a pastor now of almost 30 years, preaching almost 30 years, I still struggle. And I, I don't know if I'll ever get an answer to it until I see him. But I want to know at what point preaching becomes inspired. At what point? Because this is obviously, I took time to write down the scriptures, I mean the, the sermon, that's not inspired. But at what point does God use me or use any preacher to preach that which is inspired to hit the heart? That's a, that would be a book all in itself and maybe several volumes trying to, I, I just struggle with that still. At what point does God use the sermon to inspire or to speak to people? It's a difficult task. But these men spoke from God. And I'm wondering if the biblical writers might have struggled with that same question. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along? You know what that word is? Pharaoh. It's the same word. But this is a different nuance of that word. Pharaoh, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. David Wall's I believe is correct here. Carried along was used of a sailing ship carried along by the wind. The metaphor pictures the cooperation of the Holy Spirit with the individual writer. I like that because the individual writer never lost his characteristics of who he was. God didn't say, okay, I want you to write this and write it just like this. No, God used their natural uh, characteristic, who they were as an individual. They kept that cannot deny that. You go to scripture, you see Paul uses certain words that other biblical writers do not use. Paul frames his arguments in a different way than other biblical writers. So God used who they were, but he also spoke through them. Um, the prophets raised their sails, and the Holy Spirit filled them and carried their craft in along in the direction. So if you think of it this way, when you think of inspiration and how God moves scriptures, Think of it like this. The Holy Spirit blew the sails of the prophet in the direction that he wanted to go, and he wrote as God carried him along. 
And that is a picture of inspiration. And again, it's just an image that helps remind you that um, we are the ship, but he is the wind, and he is the one that pushes the biblical writer so that the writer did not write anything that the Holy Spirit did not want him to write. And Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of this law will pass away. And Scripture, go look at what Jesus said about Scripture. The fact is that when you have this carried along, it is the reference and the idea that God spoke. And the biblical writer heard and wrote. And that is what Peter means, and this is with all Scripture. With all Scripture. Secondly, let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 16, particularly 17 as, as, as well. So here you have uh, Timothy. This book was uh, written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his son. Uh, many of us have looked at 2 Timothy before. Uh, Paul is getting ready to be poured out as a drink offering. He's getting ready to die. He is passing along the baton to Timothy. One of his favorite, uh, one of my favorite texts is 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, in light of his return, let us preach the word in season, out of season, rebuke, correct, and exhort with careful instruction and with patience. Someday I want that on my tombstone. That's, that's my call. That's the call of a pastor to preach the word, kerjima, preach, to proclaim. He says here in verse 12, Christians will be persecuted if they live a godly life. That's me and you. That's us. In verse 13, the reason, he states, people will go from bad to worse. Is that not happening in our culture today, from bad to worse? And then, therefore, in light of this, continue in what you have learned in verse 14. Stay in the scriptures in verse 15. And while I'm there talking about Scripture, by the way, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Graphe, passage of Scripture, breathed out, theopneusos, theopneusos. And I love the way it's actually what that means is it's a communication which is inspired by God. The idea the term presents is that God breathed his character into the Scripture so it is inherently inspired. You know what? It's still alive. Did you know that? That's where breathing. Think of breathing. The scriptures breathe because they are the words of God. And when we come to the scripture, we can find out who God is. I, I, I like this. I like this. He breathed in his very character into the text. Somebody would say, well, God's not very loving. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. God is not very caring. Oh, yes, he is. God draws near to the brokenhearted, the psalmist says. God cares for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a caring, loving God that would accept somebody from anywhere in any station of life. Yeah, you can read about God and you can find out his character. And by the way, yes, God does judge and there is a judgment coming. 
There's two sides of God, if you want to put it that way. The loving God and the God who will judge the world. But it's all in Scripture. And I love that explanation. Breathed his character into the Scripture. That's lovely. Now, the importance of Scripture, all and and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. This is the importance of Scripture. Number one, all Scripture is good for teaching. That is instruction. Anytime you're in Sunday school class or when you're listening to a sermon, there is instruction going on. I am teaching you about God or about our response to God. That's what it comes down to, basically. Secondly, reproof, to point out sin or wrongdoing. In almost every sermon that I write, I try to remember this. This is how the world lives. That's the wrong way to do it. That should be in every sermon. What's missing in sermons today is pointing people and saying, this is wrong, we don't live like this. He says it here, reproof. You, 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 you teach, but you also have to reproof. You have to point something that is wrong. And you can look at our world today and see that there's a lot wrong. We don't live like the world. We don't act like the world. And then there's correction. And this word literally means to guide back in the right direction. That's what a sermon should do. It should point out something and say, that's not the way to do it, and this is the way to do it, and let's live it that way. And then lastly, it's training in righteousness. Teach righteous living. If you want to put it that way, teach righteous living. That's what the scriptures do. That's the importance of scripture. They are breathed out by God with his character. We can trust it because we've already established the fact that man did not write it, God is the origin, and that he spoke through, divine, uh, through the divine power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures, and therefore he wants us to live. That's the goal of the Christian life, is to live to please God, right? That's the goal. And then the outcome. Oh, by the way, this is what every pastor should be doing every Sunday. Too often, the pulpit is used for a place of platitudes and stories. And yet, people flock to these big churches to be fed junk food. Really, not even food at all. And it's sad, because the pastor is supposed to be pointing out the wrongdoings to stay away from it and to go this direction and to become righteous. Our goal in the Christian faith is to become more and more like Jesus who redeemed us, not like the world. And I'm not saying all big churches that this takes place in. But I tell you what, you get a lot more crowd when you're watered down the, the truth than you do when you're preaching the truth. It's a big difference, I think. Verse 17, that the man of God, that's me, Again, just remind us that 2 Timothy was written primarily for pastors. That the man of God, Timothy, and all pastors be competent and equipped for every good work. Competent means this. Fit. 
in good shape. I've heard a lot of out-of-shape sermons in my life. <laughs> a lot of out-of-shape sermons. You're supposed to be fit. The pastor is supposed to be in the Word, know the Word, so that he can impart the Word and believe that God gave him that Word to impart. I guarantee you, every one of you sitting here this morning knows that I spent time in this text, in these verses. Why? Because it was apparent that I had studied and had gone over the text. I've seen some pastors get on the line at night and download a, what we call a Saturday night special, and then they just throw it out Sunday morning like they spent 40 hours on it. No, you're supposed to be in shape, Paul says. This is literally the word for gymnasium, gymnastics. It means to be in shape. And the issue here is spiritual, not physical. Although physical uh, physicals has some good. <laughs> so go out and exercise this week. Get out there, take walks. By the way, I was on a treadmill last night, so that's good. It's inspired me to go on a treadmill. Equipped for every good work. Artizo, which is the word for fully qualified. Years ago, when I uh, answered my call to preach, I told God that I would give my best to every sermon that I stood up in front of countless congregations and preached. Why do I do that? I do that because the preaching of the word is, I think, the highest calling you can ever receive. And with that calling, it doesn't mean that what you do is unimportant, but the highest calling should, should be met with the highest quality that you can get. I know there's Sundays I didn't bring my A game. I tried, but my A game wasn't there. It was a B game, and depending on the congregation, maybe C or D game, but the effort was, was made. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but the one thing is I always made the mistake is I wanted to do it for God and do it the best. Philip Towner this other oriented description of Christian living thoroughly equipped for every good work is linked inseparably here to nourishment from the scriptures. This word equipped. My job is to feed you well. That's my job. To feed you. Why? So that you can go out and live for God in a world that needs to know him. That's so, so important, I think. Final thoughts. Number one, man is not the origin of Scripture. Never has been, never was. Man is not the origin of Scripture. Man wrote 
but he is not the origin, and God influenced the man so that he wrote exactly what God wanted. Number two, God spoke through men. Yes, men wrote the Bible, but God spoke through them. Don't leave that out. That's why we can trust the Scripture. Number three, Scripture speaks of the nature of God and his requirements for us. You cannot read too far in the Bible without saying, oh, that's what God wants me to do. I've heard people say, I don't know the will of God. Yes, you do. You basically know the will of God. I bet you if you went home, and I've said this before, maybe a couple of years ago, if you went home, I bet you you could pick 15 things that you know is the will of God. To love your neighbor as yourself, you write them out. You know that's the will of God. In other places where you're not certain, pray and wait. God will direct. Therefore, immerse yourself in Scripture. That's what I really want to go with, is to immerse yourself in the Word of God. Because it's His, He wrote it for us and to us. 